And we are back on Backseat Carpool Banter. I'm your host, Sam Kruchikov, coming to you live from sunny South Florida. In today's special episode, I am joined by my co-host, Jonathan Silbert, and as always, a very special guest, Marco Nunez. He's a high-performance athletic trainer and a sports medicine specialist who has had experience as the head athletic trainer for the Los Angeles Lakers, as well as other professional sports teams. Make sure to stick around to listen to Marco's stories and our great conversations. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Backseat Carpool Banter. show it's a pleasure having you on thank you guys uh happy to be here yeah so we we were looking at your career with the the los angeles lakers and personally i want to say i'm a big fan of the work that you put in uh from 2008 to 2019 so that's a big big tenure with one team uh take us into you know your time there and what you were doing specifically with the players and with the team yeah, so I started with the team, uh, officially started with the team in 2008, but I had been working with them for probably at least three years prior to that, on and off, mm-hmm. um, as during the uh, during the summertime, during uh, training camp and, and stuff like that. And I would help out with the team. So whenever the team would kind of travel and there was a player that was kind of injured and he wouldn't be able to travel, um, they would stay behind and I would work with them on the rehab protocol and the rehab stuff as the player, um, as the team would go there mm-hmm. and do it behind. Uh, but basically, when I when I joined the team in 2008, I joined them as their assistant athletic trainer. Now, mm-hmm. um, I was assistant athletic trainer slash strength and conditioning coach. Uh, those kind of were my two official titles. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think one of the reasons uh, why I was hired on staff is because I have a little bit, even though I'm, I'm an actual uh, athletic trainer, that's kind of by nature. That's where I went to school. I'm also certified strength and conditioning specialist. Um, I have a little bit of other traits as well. Um, I'm also a rehab specialist. I'm also do massage therapy. I do on the court conditioning, um, all that stuff. So I think at the time, Gary Vitti was already the head trainer. So he kind of had his role there. We had um, Chip Schaefer, the strength coach. He kind of had, had his toe there. We had Alex McKegney. He was our, our physical, physiotherapist, rehab specialist. He kind of had his little niche there. Um, we had uh, Marco Udevode from Finland. He was our massage therapist. He had his niche there. Um, but when, so when I came aboard, I kind of was able, um, and I was pretty much assistant to everybody, and I was able to kind of fit in, in every single role because I was able to do massage mm-hmm. therapy, I was able to do, do manual therapy, I was able to do rehab, I was able to do strength conditioning, I was able to do after training, on the core functional stuff, everything that sort. So my role was kind of became, I would say, it was like a liaison between everybody, and I can mm-hmm. kind of just work, put, go in wherever I, I need it. I mean, at times I was I had experience a little bit with the equipment manager, Rudy Garcia Duenas, our, our equipment guy. I was, you know, whenever needed a hand, I would be out there uh, doing equipment as well. Uh, on and off. So that was my initial role when I first started with team and slowly kind of blended in. As my years kind of progressed on there, mm-hmm. uh, my key role then became is, was to introduce kind of sports science into the Lakers. Um, sports science was a huge thing. It kind of started evolving. Not until um, I became the head performance athletic trainers when we actually, uh, I was able to choose actual more sports science. We did a lot of testing with our athletes. We did a lot of hydration, all that stuff, but we, we can get into more of that stuff as kind of we go along. Yeah, and actually, can you elaborate a little bit more on that sports science? Because I think that's something that, uh, would you say that's something that is new? It's being integrated into these sports a little bit more recently that, than some of the other techniques that you mentioned earlier? Yes. So, so I mean, rehab, manual therapy has kind of always kind of been there as far as rehabbing mm-hmm. the athletes. And, and over, I would say, about 15 years ago, um, now, granted, we back up a little bit, sports science has technically been around forever. I mean, when you mm-hmm. take body fat, when you do your weight, when you do um, any of that, so that's kind of considered sports science because mm-hmm. um, anything that you utilize to monitor somebody, their progression, and then use that information to try to kind of either change their program, that's considered sports science. But mm-hmm. the whole what the whole sports science kind of like evolution about, you know, where, wearable devices, technology, cameras, you name it, all, all this stuff, everybody's like, oh, wow. That kind of started... Um, it started being introduced into sports about maybe about 15 years ago. And then it kind of really blew up maybe about started really blowing up about maybe 10 years ago type of thing. Um, and to be completely honest with you, at first, I think nobody knew exactly what it was. 
and how to use it. Mm-hmm. But everybody was like, dude, we got to use it. I mean, if <laughs> team A has it, we team B has to have it type mm-hmm. of thing. And so everybody kind of just threw it through, you know, it was one of those things where everybody just started throwing stuff against the wall and like, let's see what state, let's just have it because they have it. We mm-hmm. got to have it. You know, Manchester FC has it. We got to have it type of thing. And it became this crazy thing that everybody just kind of dove into it. And then about maybe five, six years, years ago, everybody's like, you know what? Hold on. Let's slow down. Let's see what we have. And, and that's one of the issues where a lot of teams kind of get into is that where they just, you know, they see the new toy. So-and-so has it. We got to have it. And then when they get it, it's like, okay, well, what do we do with it? And that became the big issue. Once you had it, everybody was like, okay, well, what do we do? What do we do type of thing? So, um, you know, when, when I took over head performance athletic trainer, uh, we had a partnership with the GSSI, Gatorade Sports Science Institute. Institute. Um, so I called them in, I brought them in, and we had a big meeting with them type of thing. And 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 they've been around, Gatorade's been around for a bunch of years, and they have a whole sports lab, uh, I believe in Chicago. We went and checked it out and kind of everything they had. If you, ever, I remember, if you guys remember seeing this commercial with Aiden Manning with the, uh, you know, O2 running on the treadmill, all this stuff. So they mm-hmm. do everything. Yeah. Um, so they came on board. So I came up we have like this, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. I'm like, I'm up, <laughs> let's slow down. Mm-hmm. So my thing was, it's always been, I've always had this passion about, okay, you know what, if, if I'm going to do one thing, let's do it right. And then once that gets perfected, then let's build up on it. Let's build on upon it, build upon it, build upon it. So when Gatorade came in, and one of the reasons why we had Gatorade come in is because we had an athlete, um, and this kind of part, so we had an athlete that when we should travel on clockwork, every time we get, we leave a city. So let's say we're in Atlanta, we play the game, we leave it, and then we go to Orlando, we land at about one o'clock you know, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, I would get a text. Hey, Marco, I have a Marco, I have a headache. I have a headache. I have a headache. Boom, boom. It, it was just a clock. I mean, it became routine. So I was like, okay, what's going on here? Why is it this athlete is already constantly, you know, with headache? So when we got back, I met with our doctors. Every player before they begin the season, they do, we do a full physical. I mean, MRI scans, stress tests, lab work, you name it. I mean, the money spent on these guys wow. just to do before they get on the court is like crazy. Um, but we have to. So when we looked at his lab test, we realized that he was depleted or deficient in a lot of these other things like calcium, potassium, which had to do with hydration and water. So I had brought in Gatorade to come in and we did what's called a sweat analysis test where they put a slap, a little thing on, on your on your wrist, your forehead, mm-hmm. you go out and play, they take that, they analyze it and then determine how much electrolyte levels are you having in your body, how much calcium, potassium, all this other information. Well, we quickly found out that this athlete that was constantly having headaches was already in a dehydrated state. So before he even went on the court, he was already dehydrated. Oh, wow. um, exactly. So that's when then we, so then we tested everybody else. And then the first thing we did, we created a, what's called a customized hydration program. So every player had a customized hydration. So every, whenever you see the players kind of have the little getter score box, they scored in there, they would have their name on it. And, but you couldn't just grab anybody. They had their names because one was customized to each individual. Um, based on their needs, based on their sweat, based on how much electrolytes to loss, all that stuff. And once we were able to kind of create that for this player, um, surprisingly, he stopped. Now, either he just stopped calling me for asking me for these, you know, for they had a headache. I think maybe once after that, and I think it was just, it was something else. We had been happened to be in New mm-hmm. York City, so I'm sure it was other reasons for that. <laughs> um, but um, but um, after that he stopped and that's where we're kind of so that's kind of where the whole sports science comes in and, and the whole thing with the sports science is a lot of teams have to understand hey you know what what do you need as a team and how can you help your athletes it's not just you know taking one one thing and try to fit it into you know like to take a circle try to fit it into a square it's like okay mm-hmm. what do we need and then kind of grow from there but like mm-hmm. I said there was this huge craze and everybody was trying to kind of get into a top thing this reminds me of a conversation that we had with the head of health for the Washington Wizards, Naveen Hedriachi. And... Oh, yeah, I know Naveen very well. Yep. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty yeah, he's funny. He's a great friend of mine. Um, so, so in our conversation, we were just talking about how AI and technology has shifted over the years and the effect of that on what teams do. <clears throat> so my question for you is not what is sports science, is why sports science, why our teams and, and the technology really shifting what teams do to help their players like that, that very interesting Gatorade strip story with the, the tracking their sweat and hydration right. and all that. Well, I mean, it's, so let, let's take that, for example, at the end of the day, you know, the tr- old traditional way as an athletic trainer, when I used to do rehab with an athlete and we were turning to play, the most common way was like, Hey, you know, if I was rehabbing you, as soon as we do a workout, I would ask, Hey, how do you feel? You would tell me, uh, okay, I feel good. I feel mm-hmm. sore. 
maybe a little pain, no pain, blah, blah. And it was very, what's called subjective. It's basically what you're telling me. Mm-hmm. Um, and at times, and I'll be honest with you guys, athletes want to play and sometimes they may not mm-hmm. tell me the truth um, or they may not want to play and they still may not tell me the truth type of thing. So it goes one mm-hmm. way to so become very subjective. So what this whole sports science does, it basically takes it and makes it objective and gives you some uh, some real life numbers type thing. So for example, we take this same thing with this player with the dehydration stage, right? Mm-hmm. We could have, I could have said, I'm asking okay, well, he's probably dehydrated. Let me just pack his drink with a bunch of salt and electrolyte. Let me just pack it in there and hopefully that'll <laughs> fix it, right? <laughs> Which we could have done it. Now, if I would have overdone with the electrolytes and the salt, then he would have got into a different stage. He would have been too much salt and then it would kind of been balanced off. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we tested him, got some objective numbers, got exactly what he needed. We created a formula for him and we were able to kind of resolve it. So that's kind of where, where the whole um, sports science AI is kind of going, just trying to make everything more object- objective for practitioners like myself, the physical therapists, the performance coaches, and like, you know, Naveen, stuff like that, to give us some information and make a better informed decision on how do we be able to treat our athletes type thing and also how to progress them and how to rehab them and how to help them at the end of the day versus just kind of, hey, um, Samuel, how you feel today? You're like, hey, thumbs up. All right, let's go then. <laughs> no, yeah. like, like it used to be. Yeah, I think what a lot of people don't realize from the outside is how subjective a lot of these medical practices really are. It's that um, pain is kind of on a relative scale and um, it, there's no way to really tell what's going on inside of somebody unless you do the analysis, do all of those things. And from what it sounds like you're saying is that these new tools, these new technologies are really helping you put a more objective lens over these things that otherwise you could feel, but you don't actually know how to quantify. Is that right? Correct, 100%. And, you know, at, at the same time, you know, the, the one thing also is that even though we're using a lot of this objective information, mm-hmm. there's a lot of other variables involved. One, obviously, there's a human factor. We have to consider the athlete himself and herself. You know, we cannot just exclude that because if the athlete comes, hey, I feel great, but this information is telling me no, then that's a whole different story. Um, at the same time, and I hate to say this, but this is reality, is that also the situation where you're at. You know, like I tell mm-hmm. people, you know, a lot of these athletes or a lot of these uh, um um, teams, universities use what's called monitoring tra- uh, load management tracking systems, right? And they monitor the athlete. Sometimes they have like some wearable cameras. And what it is, is basically to try to track and see if the athlete is at a higher risk of injury. Doesn't mean they're going to get injured. All it is, hey, you know, now you're at a 60% risk of injury or you're at a 90% risk of injury type of thing. You're like in the red zone, as they call it. So we're going to either sit you off for this game. That's why you see some games where a player isn't playing at a certain game because they're either they're at a, at a red, so they've got to sit them out because now it's a high risk of injury. Doesn't mean if they play, they're going to get hurt. No, they may be at a 5% of injury, risk of injury. They may be in the green and they can still get hurt. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it's it's utilized as an objective formation for position. At the same time, like I tell everybody, hey, if it's game seven against the Boston Celtics, all of a sudden I'm looking at my load management and, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, a player, let's say back then KB was in the red. Am I really going to go say, hey, sorry, KB, you can't play because you're in the red. You're high <laughs> risk of injury. No. And then, you know, um, that's where uh, the human factor kind of comes in. And then also yeah. every player is different. You know, there's there's your LeBrons, your Kobe, you know, stuff like that. And and, and so you, you cannot just – what I'm trying to say is at the end of the day, this is not just a one tool that, hey, this is the end all for everything. This is what's going to tell you. Just another, like, tell about it. It's just another tool in your toolbox. That's mm-hmm. it. Do you sometimes find yourself having like the teams breathing down your neck a little bit when you're trying to make sure players at their peak physical condition to go out and, and compete at the highest level, but the team is trying to get their star back and, and pushing the stars back to play? Do you ever find that they're, they're trying to go against the percentages that you guys track and the numbers that you guys track just so that they can get more wins and potentially make the playoffs? Um, you know, it, it, it completely depends on, on, on the situation. And that, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It also depends on the, the player also. Um, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, by the time they get to the professional level, players tend to know their bodies and they tend to know how to react. They tend to know how to compensate. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to know how to, how, how to be safe. You know, Kobe was one of those guys that when we, you know, when we go to him, I have all this data, but yet, you look, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, oftentimes, and he and I had a great relationship that we were, I was just completely honest with him. And he was honest with me, hey, I would go to him, hey, KB, 
how you feeling, boom, boom. He'll just tell me, hey, this is this. Even though this is this, like I'm a good woman. He does his thing. But he understood that even when he went out there on the court, he would be smart enough to not do something that like dumb that would kind of either aggravate or something like that. So if he goes in there with like a, let's say, shoulder issue, he understood mm-hmm. that he, if he had a shoulder issue, he, he understood that he's not going to go in there and bang and use a shoulder on this move. Mm-hmm. He's either going to do more of a, you know, post up from behind or maybe shoot a more. So he kind of knew how to play the game and how, how to be able to do that. So, but then there's other players that don't know how to do that. So it's almost like we have to protect the player from themselves type of thing. So it, for, it it's hard for me to answer that question because it's always, you have to consider the player. You got to consider the mm-hmm. team. You got to consider the time. You got to consider everything. So there's not just one element type of thing. That's why I said, you know, this is just a tool in your toolbox. That's it. And sometimes that tool, you got to toss it aside and get rid of it. I don't know. It varies. Yeah. And I, I'm really glad you started bringing up uh, about the late Kobe Bryant. Um, every time we get to hear stories about him, it's always a pleasure. Uh, so one of the most inspiring stories from him is when he got hurt in uh, the playoffs against the Warriors, and then yep. he still went back out and hit two free throws before uh, going to the bench and then getting taken care of. Uh, can you talk about some of those inspiring uh, injury recovery stories and maybe focus a little bit specifically on that one as well? Yeah, so that that was very interesting, and, and uh, um, I like telling kind of that 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 one specific because a lot of people are familiar with kind of the mama mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about Kobe kind of being the first one into the gym and the last one out type thing, and that was him. I mean, we, we used to practice at uh, I think our practice session was at uh, eleven o'clock um, on the court. Um, mm-hmm. Treatment training room would open up about nine o'clock for everybody else, but by the time the players arrived about nine nine thirty. Kobe already had a full lift. He had already had a full workout <laughs> in the gym. He was in the training room recovering, not rehabbing, recovering, getting ready for the second practice. But that's wow. who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the interesting part, uh, you know, like I said, as far as the mom mentality, is also not just that the work ethic, but the mental aspect of it. Um, you know, finding out way, you know, understanding that there's going to be roadblocks in front of you and whatever you do. And understanding that, hey, you need to overcome those roadblocks. So there, there's a book that I was reading the uh, like a, two years ago, and it kind of hit me. Hey, this is kind of like what Kobe called um, mm-hmm. "Obstacle is the Way" by I think Ryan Holiday. And in the story, uh, there's a king. You know, it starts with the story with the king that he puts. You know, he puts a in his kingdom. He puts this big boulder in front of the entrance, mm-hmm. and people can approach a couple ways. One, you can be like, "Oh, screw it, I can't go it. Done. We're stuck in here." Or two is like, okay, well, maybe we'll go around it, climb it, go, go completely different, but the obstacle's still there. Or three, you go right through the obstacle, start just breaking through it and understand that that's what it is. And I was reading, like, that's Kobe. That's yeah. like the mom mentality. You're going to go right through it. So this example about what you're talking about, um, the day where he kind of tore his Achilles. I remember he went out there, Gary went out there. I could hear the conversation. And he knew he threw, tore his Achilles. He's like, Mm-hmm. Gary's like it, it's your Achilles done there's so he, something wrong yeah yeah Kobe already knew that I mean he, and that's the thing about it. Kobe knew his his body he, he understood every detail about it. he was an interesting guy um but what most people don't understand is that when you get fouled if you don't shoot your free throws and you leave the mm-hmm. court you're not allowed to return you you're like back, you're done yeah. you can't come back in right and most people don't know that so in Kobe's mind is like all right let me shoot those free throws let me go back to the training room see what I can do to come back to the game there's an <laughs> obstacle in front of me now granted there was a point oh 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 <laughs> one chance that he was going to come back <laughs> but for him it's like even though there's that point oh 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 one i'm going to figure something out so he you know mm-hmm. he shot his free throws went to the back you know his mind is new and, and that's it but he didn't want to leave that opportunity in case he was able to come back now granted like i said almost zero chance it was going to come back, but he wanted that, that he wanted to leave that up there type of thing. So that's kind of like his, his thought process. And that's kind of like what he, the way he thinks. Same thing when, um, uh, during the championship year, when we won the chapter, he ruptured what's called, he had an avulsion fracture in his finger. So if you mm-hmm. go back and look at it, he has his finger taped up. Mm-hmm. Next morning he shows up, we tape up his finger. Um, you know, most players would have been like, okay, either we got to get surgery. We got to explain we're done type of thing. He goes, we tape his finger, goes out to the court. Now, this is early in the morning before everybody comes in because he wants to be ready before everybody comes in. So this is like about 6.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning. Wow. He goes out there, starts shooting. He's missing. He grabs the ball. You can see, like, I'm watching this right from this. He's, like, playing with the ball, playing with the ball, gripping it, gripping it. You can, you can, you can see Trying that to get a still, feel. Yeah. yeah, trying to get a feel of it. He, you can see he still has a little discomfort because every time he grips it, he asks, hey, what you, what you did. 
He goes shoot, shoots, he misses. Finally, he makes one, makes two, figures it out, starts making a couple moves, starts making it, makes you know ten in a row. After that, boom, puts the ball down. Figured it, he figured it out. Goes back, it's gone. Had an obstacle, figured out how to go through it, played on through it. Wow, and that really I, reminds me of the mind over body kind of yeah. uh, right. struggle there, where he was playing through some great pain. Uh, and by the way, when we were talking about the Achilles, he made those free throws too. It's not that's exactly. not a, <laughs> it's not like he just went out and shot them. He went out there and made them. And I mean, the Achilles, most players don't even come back at all from an Achilles injury. That's usually a career ender. And he was able to come back and actually had a couple of other pretty decent seasons after that one too. Yep. Uh, so did. can you talk about that mind over body mentality where yes it hurts but he's stronger than the pain and how other players that you've seen use that too yeah and, and that, that's the thing about it, it, it it's um you know it, as an athlete it, it, it i think at the end at the end of the day i don't know at least i have never done it myself where i can kind of just um completely eliminate the pain out of there you mm -hmm. kind of have mm -hmm. the discomfort but trying to figure out how you can maneuver how you can play and and and, and play um other ways, you know, if all of a sudden you were a shooter and that's what, what's your niche, can you kind of do something else to help the team type of thing? You know, prime example, I remember when during the middle of the game when he um, injured his right shoulder, um, I don't know if you guys recall that one game he could, so he couldn't shoot. So all of a sudden he started yep. with left-handed, pass with left hand, <laughs> lay up with left hand, everything left-handed type of thing. But that was him. He, you know, his he's, was like, he's better with his left than 90% of the NBA is with the right. And that, exactly, and that's the other thing about it, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of interesting though, you know, sometimes uh, I had a question before, um, this is way before like Kobe became really, really Kobe. I remember someone had asked even Michael Jordan, would you take a 70% healthy Michael Jordan um, versus other, most other players? Most people are like, yeah, I'll take a 70% healthy Michael Jordan. Cause like I said, 70% <laughs> healthy Michael Jordan, you're probably going to figure out how to waste, how to get, how to get his 30, 40 points. During the game, he's still going to do what he needs to do um, uh, on the court. You know, and, and even like, um, I'll go back to another story. Before I joined the Lakers, I used to work with um, the LA, back then they were called the LA Defenders. Um, okay. Now they're called the South Bay Lakers, their development team. Mm -hmm. That's how I kind of started there. And we used to also, the, the LA Defenders used to play at, um, at Staples Center right before the Lakers. Mm -hmm. used to play, I think at 3.30, something like that. So, and our locker room was right next to the Lakers. So as soon as our game was over, I would stick around and I would go over to the Lakers uh, at the training room and I would help them out. I think one of my first times I actually went there, Kobe had an ankle sprain. So I walk in and now there's, for an ankle sprain, there's like a first, second, and third degree sprain. The first one's like a mild one, you know, you kind of did a little swelling, second one, um it's more painful a little more swollen the third one's like just fat yeah. black and blue mm -hmm. you name it right so i walk in and, and kobe is starting comes in starts to get treatment and his ankle's like fat black oh and blue. I mean, it looks like mm -hmm. an elephant trunk type of thing right and it's just there and anyway, he goes through his treatments i'm like all right so i'm just kind of watching helping out and watching his treatment then he leaves the, the training room goes to the locker room comes back and comes back with his uh game shorts on i'm like all right well most guys you know put the game shorts on just for rehab it's a common thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though they're, they're not playing they just kind of wear it because usually when they come to, to to the arena they don't wear they don't bring practice clothes they just bring their regular clothes right i'm like all right cool and then he goes comes back and he comes in with his jersey in his hand i'm like all right whatever <laughs> right <laughs> he's actually gonna play through right. this <laughs> and then he jumped on the taping table i'm like all right well maybe i'm like they're gonna just tape him for um for compression right mm -hmm. and as i'm looking at this i see gary taping him Regular tape job. Throws his jersey on, goes back, comes back, gets his sneakers on. I'm like, oh my God. and he goes out and first puts up 30 points. I'm like, wow. wow. Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of like my first, like, real life inexperience there to see what, who he was type of thing. I was like, wow. All right, then. <laughs> yeah. So you, you were talking earlier about, like, would you take Michael Jordan at 70% over the majority of the players in the league? I, I was curious as to what exactly entitles 70%. How do you calculate how healthy someone actually is? And then the mindset is a different thing because if you have a better mindset, your 70% is probably more like 100% because you're ready to go, you know your body. Yeah, so take us into that a little bit. Correct, and you see, that's the thing about it. I've always had a little discussion. Maybe this might be another topic of discussion. You know, what is mental toughness better, equivalent or worse or less than physical toughness? You have guys that are physically tough, they can lift, they can shoot, 
but sometimes that mental toughness and, uh, you know, sometimes you kind of see that, you know, when it comes to, into the whole playoffs, um, either mm-hmm. teams that have been kind of like just killing teams, destroying teams during the season, but then when it comes to the playoffs, because the playoffs is a totally different beast, especially every single round you get past it. It's different intensity, different stress, different thing. It's not, it's not the regular season. Um, you know, you have teams like, uh, I remember Popovich and with the San Antonio Spurs, they would just kind of cruise through the season and you're like, nobody hears about them. They kind of sneak in it in the seventh or sixth spot or fifth spot. And also the playoffs, boom, they take off. Um, mm-hmm. But that was their approach. That was their, you know, they were preparing for the playoffs type of thing. Um, same thing with Phil Jackson. When we had him, it was the same thing. You know, we would always be like in the two or three. And, and Phil was like, I don't really care if we're at the one. We just want to get in. We're going to cruise the clock and kind of kick into gear. So it's also the, the mental toughness type thing. You know, uh, Kobe had this thing about talking about, you know, who do you want in the, um, what's it called, um, in the trenches with you? Mm-hmm. When when the firing goes crazy and you have couples and you're stuck in the trenches, who do you want with you? Do you want that that strong, big, heavy, strong guy, or do you want that mental toughness guy that's going to fight with you to the end type of thing? So that's kind of like one of the questions. So the question is like seventy percent: Would you want Michael Jordan at seventy percent in the trenches with you when you're ready to take on somebody else, or somebody else that mentally may not be mentally tough? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think all of the best teams, the championship teams, have a combination of the both, right? It's the the big guys that can actually take a beating and then the ones that can also uh, fight through the pain even if they're physically not as uh, built for that. Yeah, I mean, it speaks a lot about what certain organizations do, not only to prepare their players, but to plan for certain events. What do you do as preventative measures when somebody is at 70%? And they want to come back, but, you know, the training staff, the athletic training staff be like, maybe it's a little too soon. What's like the conversation like when you're talking to a player that's eager to come back? All right. So and that's the thing about it. Um, you know, so, sometimes as athletic trainers, as sportsmen staff, our job is not only and that's, you know, I was talking to, to I, had, uh, I was on Clubhouse the other day and we we're talking about this. That sometimes working with professional athletes or type A personalities is like, uh, I don't want to say it's a, a curse and a blessing, so to speak, but mm-hmm. sometimes it's uh, our job is to kind of not necessarily hold the player back, but kind of make them understand, hey, you know what, this is where you're at. Our goal isn't to get you back in one or two games. Our goal is kind of like long-term effect type of thing, especially mm-hmm. if it's temp- potential championship year or stuff like that, we're going to make it run to the playoffs. So um, oftentimes it, it's more a, of a team setting. So it'll be like myself as a head trainer, the player will be in the meeting, the coach will be in the meeting. Oftentimes the GM is also in the meeting, even the ownership's in the meeting. And it's a decision that's kind of made by, by this whole entire group as an understanding, hey, you know, and even the, 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 the team physicians may be in, in the meeting. Hey, you know what? If we sit you out for a day or two or one, we miss one more, one or more two games, then you'll be hit healthier for the long run. Because at, at the end of the day, our goal is to keep the players healthy in the long run, not in the, in the short run type of thing. Now, mm-hmm. again, I think you had asked me, um, Jonathan, that question about, you know, there's different situations, you know. Um, you have to consider a bunch of different things. Where are we in the season? Where are we in the standings? Where are we in the playoffs? Um, who the player is? Where are the players? Like all this stuff. Where are they in the rehab stage? Stuff like that. Um, and then, then there's, it's, it's, it's referred to, you know, the one thing I was talking about, it's called the, the risk reward type of thing. What is mm-hmm. the risk versus the reward? Is the risk higher than the reward or is the reward higher than the risk type of thing? And again, also, there's also some, the athletes you have to kind of consider. I remember we were in um, Indiana and, and Kobe had a, um, an ankle sprain and he still wanted to kind of give it a go. And he did, you know, he taped it up. He did rehab. He went and gave it a go. He tried out there for about two, three minutes. And then he realized, you know what? No, this is way too much even for him this beyond he pulled himself out so some you know sometimes we allow the players to kind of make that decision and at the end of the day they usually do um but there's players are smart enough to understand okay you know what if this is a risk reward and they kind of back themselves up type of thing what do you think about the i guess a lot of people would call it a problem but i want to get your take on it of load management sweeping the league where all these star players are actually sitting out longer stretches of games even when they're seemingly 100% healthy, at least from the outside. Obviously, from the inside, uh, there might be some more going on. But what do you think of that, where more and more star players are embracing sitting out rather than fighting through the pain and playing? Um, You know what? It, it, again, it, it varies from team to team, from player to mm-hmm. player, and how they're managing type of thing. 
Um, it, you know, oftentimes it's one of those things where I think some teams, and it, it may, maybe the fact that, you know, Popovich and the San Corners kind of San Antonio Spurs kind of did it way back then where they used to kind of sit out Tim Duncan for a couple of games. Mm -hmm. They used to sit out um, Tony Parker for, for a couple of games here and there just for the sake of sitting down. But it helped them out because then they made a run in the playoffs type of thing. And, and nowadays, a lot of teams uh, are not concerned especially teams that you know are going to kind of make the playoffs are not too concerned about the season. They're looking more into the off season type of thing. Cause that's where they want their players. That's where you want to peak. And, th and that's the thing about it. As an athletic trainer, you work with your strength condition department, you work with your therapist, you work with everybody, your performance coaches. And your goal is that you want your players to peak at the right time. And you want them to peak in the playoffs, mm -hmm. not mid season, not, towards the end of the season type of thing. You want them to peak at that time. And that's what you get in, in doing load management is one of the ways to kind of consider it. Um, now, you're asking me if, do they use it for actual load management or something players to sit out? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <that> way. <laughs> do you um, think, do you, oh, sorry, Sam. Do you think that the, the length of the NBA season has a lot to do with it as well? Like you're saying that they're preparing for their physical peak to be in the playoffs after the season, but the season's 82 games long. This season, it's 72, but... Why is it so important that they peak towards the end when throughout the regular season, it kind of seems like the games, I mean, they, they matter, but they don't matter as much as, as they would towards the end. What are the players' mentality in that? Um, see, but, but then it, it varies from team to team also. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, if you have a team that, that's struggling to make the playoffs, then they're, they're battling to get there. If you have other teams that are, hey, you know what, yeah, I'm not saying that teams are going to be cruising. Hey, you know, we're going to cruise throughout the whole season. So we know we're going to get playoffs because there's no guarantee. You know, you cruise all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're like in the 10th spot. What happened here type of thing? So you still have to play, but you have to kind of manage that, 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 that mm -hmm. you know, that level. because You don't want them to peak or, or create any what's called either chronic injuries. And then you, you don't have them for the playoffs type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, was one of your so so, so it, it's tough. It, it's varied from team to team, from player to player. Like I said, it, it's not a one size fits all, unfortunately. Yeah, but that's also what makes it the beauty of the game, and then your profession too, where you have to uh, individualize pretty much every treatment plan sure. to every player. Um, can you talk about some of so since you're working so close with the players, some personal relationships that you've been able. Uh, to develop with uh, the players or other members of the training staff, uh, things like that. You know, and, and that's, um, you know, when I talk to student athletic trainers and they're trying to kind of get, you know, um, they're trying to see where they want to work and stuff like that, or what, mm -hmm. what level they want to work. And one of the things I talked about them is kind of working with, with professional athletes or with, with these athletes. Um, the relationship that I usually build with them is, is different than just kind of like athlete and athletic trainer type mm -hmm. thing. You know, obviously, you sometimes spend more time around these athletes than you do with your own family because you're with them mm -hmm. seven days a week, um, from 8 a.m. till probably about 10 p.m. You travel with them, you hang out with them. Um, I mean, what do you do? Either you can either go to to, to a city and lock, keep yourself locked into your hotel, but sometimes you know you you become friends with them. It's it's a different mm -hmm. relationship type of thing, um, and and that's one of the things I remember uh, as a student, as a assistant trainer that that I learned from Gary Vee a lot, and I think I. I praise them for this is um as an athletic trainer physical therapist as a as a coach one of the things that you want to build is the trust between you and your athlete um mm -hmm. and and that relationship that, that you have that it becomes more than just athlete versus uh, athlete and athletic trainer it's more i'm a friend i'm a colleague we're working together for the for the same reasons we're trying to get you to a high level so you'll be able to compete and then be able to kind of perform on there and hopefully get help us get a championship type of thing so you do you you, you build relationships um, with the athletes, um, I'll tell you, um, I'll give you one example, um, uh, Julius Randle. Julius Randle and I became very, very, very good, good friends uh, uh, type of thing. All-star this year. Yes, definitely all-star this year. Um, he's a beast. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think we were in Oklahoma City, and uh, his, his mom um, lived in Dallas. And she would drive up, and I think Julius Randle was a huge love um, uh, with the um, red velvet cake, right? And oh. uh, yeah, uh, who doesn't? And, right, yeah. And I remember <laughs> I was I was coming up. We're in the elevator, and his mom had just arrived, and like they were walking up, and I'm like, "Who got there?" She's like, "Oh, red velvet cake." 
I'm like, oh man, I sound like I love that right there. So they Julius and I were like just, you know, in the training room just shooting the breeze. Like, dude, I suck your mom about your real bell cake, dude. It's like, yeah, I love that. Blah, 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 <laughs> and I'm like, and I told him like, yeah, I love it, stuff like this. So uh, next time we were at Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Next thing I know, um, you know, walk in, his mom walks in with two red velvet cakes. It's like, oh, here, here's one for you, you and here's <laughs> one for Julius. She's like, Julius told me that, and, and he's like, Julius told me that you loved it. So it, it's kind of, it becomes a family topic. So it's kind of cool. And, you know, she brought me, so then it became a whole thing. Every time we go to OKC, I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to get red, 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 my red velvet cake. Because uh, I think like, because I think Julius split it with me the first time. And he's like, oh, dude, this is my whole, this is my cake, my cake. So they told his mom, hey, make sure you bring one for Marco. Um, so then next time she brought, she brought two. So I'm like, sweet. So like stuff like that, you, you build relationships and, you know, it's more family and friends type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, also with Julius Randall, didn't you also help his fiance give birth? No, I did not. I don't know where Sam got that information then. Um... Oh yeah. Just dump, uh, dumping it on me. <laughs> your lack of research. <laughs> no, no, no. So no, um, the, the, uh, not to get into too much detail. No, I did not help his, his wife give birth. There was incident. And here's the thing. There was incident that happened, I think, with, with his uh, wife and she was pregnant. Um, no, nothing serious or anything of that sort. And it was right before the game, right before practice. So obviously, you know, Julius started in a panic mode. He's like, oh my God, you know, she, she's over there. He's here. Um, so, you know, I'm like, hey, Julius, you know, I had, you know, give me her number. Let me call her. Let me call our, our team doc. Let, let me kind of start coordinating this stuff. Hey, make pull sure some strings. Get, yeah, pull some strings, get her straight where she needs to be. Let, let our doc communicate with her, see if we need to, you know, get her to ER or anything of that sort. And it wasn't anything to the point of ER. It's more like, you know, she just had a little bit of an episode, nothing serious whatsoever. So as he's out in practice, you know, every 10 minutes, I'm like, hey, she's good. I'll give him a quick update. I'll give him a quick update, um, stuff like that. Everything resolved. It was very minor stuff. But when you're pregnant and it was your first kid, obviously you're like, oh my God, oh my God, type of thing. Yeah. Um, so again, that trust of helping him and her and help him ease so he can do what he needs to do and help her at the same time. Um, it's kind of like what, what I said, kind of like that friendship type of thing. But it's, it's more than basketball. That, exactly. So it's more than basketball. Um, and, you know, he was fine. She was fine. He had, you know, it, it was nothing serious, but it was just that, that trying to help them out type of thing. But yeah, no, okay. I did not deliver. Yeah, so... I mean, this is an interesting segue to to another topic because obviously I know Julius Randle at the beginning of his career, in his first game, he broke his foot and and was out the entire season, but has really come back from that. And that technically counted as as his rookie season, right? That's Yeah. So he couldn't win rookie of the year when he came back? Yeah, I was kind of bummed out that they didn't uh they count that as his rookie year because I think next year when he came back, he actually had a pretty good um mm-hmm. I think if you oh, look yeah. at his numbers, he would have been up there fighting for that rookie of the year uh title. I I I'm going back to that time. I remember um I was like they 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 robbed him. That's highway robbery because he's <laughs> he's playing better he's better than he's playing better than a lot of the rookies. And you know, good for him that he's he's playing extremely well now in New York yep. and and dominating as as yep. a big man in the east um any other players that you've you've worked with that have gone on to done greater things maybe Brandon Ingram any, any uh, yeah. with Brandon Ingram Brandon Ingram is the first the next one that that, that pops in, in in my mind um you know Brandon Brandon Ingram um you you can tell that he was kind of you know he, he played it he played um down at Duke and came down here to the Lakers mm-hmm. and he was very he, he was very kind of, I don't want to say secluded, but he kind of kept to himself. Mm-hmm. Nice kid, very respectful, one of the nicest kids you ever, ever meet type of thing, but he was kind of here. And the whole time you were just waiting for him to break out of his shell. And mm-hmm. occasionally here and there, you saw like little moments where I remember he, he got mad and then he screamed and stuff like that. You're like, oh, well, and, like, and everyone's like, <laughs> everyone stops. You want to see that BI. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then he would kind of go back. Um, but, but you knew, everybody knew it was just a matter of time that he broke out of that shell and then he would become a, a beast type of thing. Yeah, but I'm assuming that when LeBron comes to town, it also takes a toll on these young guys who have a high ceiling, but now they're expected to get there maybe five years sooner than they were originally going to. Would you say that? Yeah, I mean, that, you, you're right. I mean, when, when, you, when you're trying to build a team and you're trying to win now, um, you, you got to figure out, okay, what are the pieces? Where are you at? 
um, can, are, can, can, can you stay there and be able to develop you quick enough to be able to kind of compete with, with, with everybody else? So again, it, it varies from team to team, it varies from situation, stuff like that. So it's, it's not a, you cannot take it as a cookie cutter program type of thing. Same thing with rehab. When you're rehabbing athletes, mm -hmm. it's not, there's no way cookie cutter. And like you mentioned, everything has to be customized to the individual, to the situation, to the team, to the time. Mm -hmm. It's like all these mm -hmm. variables. It's not just, boom, there's no like specific formula. I like to refer to that year where LeBron first came to the Lakers as the year of uncertainty yep. because the team did not know who was going to be on the roster. Kuzma was in trade talks, Ingram, yep. Hart, Lonzo, all of them were in trade talks. And the, in my opinion, at, from an outsider's perspective, that team never really gelled. And especially with the injuries that that, that whole team had, Throughout the year, LeBron getting hurt. All, all, all of these players really had some sort of setback to the year. Um, the year of uncertainty. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, and, and that's the thing about it. I remember there was so much talk uh, around uh, trade talks and stuff like that. And when you're a young athlete coming into the NBA, you're not used to that. It, it can mentally affect you type of thing, um, whether it either can either motivate you to perform better or it can unmotivate you to like you know hey all right fine well i'm gonna get traded top thing and, and, and it varies and it, every year during the trade deadline there's always a little tension no, mm -hmm. no, no matter what even in, in every team everywhere it always happens type of thing and the interesting part about it is that as a uh, as a head athletic trainer all the players kind of like also kind of look at you and they're like hey marco you have an inside information can you tell me am i you know <laughs> and unfortunately you know i can't mm -hmm. say anything um, because I'm working with management uh, on, on that part. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's always an uncertainty, e even on championship teams. Every team has a trade line coming around, no matter who you are, what you are there, unless you have a non-trade clause, I guess, mm -hmm. then you don't have to worry mm -hmm. about it. <laughs> Other than that, yeah. there's always a little bit of uncertainty, no matter how who that, you are. How was that like with the players specifically? Because you were working with the the managing staff and, and yeah. you kind of had insider information and you couldn't share it how was that right. yeah and it, here's the thing when it cut when it came to that i was just honest with them you know and and, and they understood that you know i wasn't going to like bs them and kind of like hint around and oh my god oh my god type thing you know i just straight out telling you know what dude you know it's not my place it i cannot it is not my mm -hmm. place to do it and, and i think they respected me more for for being honest with them and saying that um and, and they understood it I, you know they were hoping that i would either say something but it's like they, they knew that it couldn't. One other thing when it comes to trades, and we've seen that actually this season uh, with this massive James Harden deal, uh, is that the players have to go through a physical, right, when they yeah. enter the team. And that's where they found um, the problem with Chris LeBert in Indiana that is possibly life-saving that they actually had to go through this rigorous physical again. Uh, can you talk about that physical? Is it the same one that teams do when the season starts that you were talking about, that top-to-bottom scan? And also now tying it back with the, the first topic we talked about with the sports science. So now you're getting a new player into the roster, into the locker room that you haven't had since training camp. And how do you bring them up to speed with what, what the team is doing? Right. So, so, you know, when it comes to like the even the NBA draft where we're signing a player, we're going to trade a player, anything like that. My job is to I'm almost like you could think of it as a uh, private investigator. Speak. My job is to try to, uh, yeah, to try to identify. <laughs> and, no, it is. <laughs> yeah. Try to find out any and all hi history of injury issues or chronic acute. Um, that the player has encountered in his career from high school, from AAU basketball, through college, through playing with the, with the NBA team, wherever they're at, and then take that all of that information, sit down with our team, with our sports medicine team, assess it, and then actually then create um, a risk of injury or, or you know, what is, he, what is he, the likelihood of him surviving or sustaining and being, being and playing for five years, 10 years, one year, two years, three years, and we use all these objective tools to try to make that assessment. But even though we have everything at the same time, to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a guessing game. Um, mm -hmm. We'll take, for example, we had, um, who was it? The kid from Duke, shooter, um, tall kid. Uh, we drafted him back in 2016. God, what's his name? In the first or second round? No, no, it was, it was second round. 
Shooter from Duke Maybe, in 2016. He, 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 from Duke, he, he ended up in Atlanta with the Atlanta Hawks afterwards. God, I can't think of his name. Not um, Ryan. Uh, Ryan. Um, Ryan something. Doing some research. No, so anyways, yeah. <laughs> Ryan <laughs> Kelly. What, 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 what? Ryan who? Kelly. No. Ryan Kelly. Exactly. Yes. Ryan Kelly. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So well, yeah, when we drafted <laughs> him, I think he was diagnosed with what's called a Jones. He had a little bit of a stress reaction in his fifth metatarsum, right? And oftentimes that may result in a, what's called a Jones fracture where they break it. They have to go in there, put a plate. And then it, it, it's actually an injury that for, for basketball players where you do a lot of pivoting, you know, you step and you kind of load it and kind of change direction can be debilitating and can become chronic and become issues. Um, so we drafted him and I kind of sat out, sat out and everybody, I think he, he dropped really low because of that. And a lot of people didn't want to take the risk of that. Hey, okay, you know, there's a high risk of it. Well, to say the least, he played with the Lakers, went out, played with Atlanta, and I don't think he mm -hmm. ever had any issues with it type of thing. Mm -hmm. So. Again, as much as uh, the objective information that we have and a lot of science we have, at the end of the day, still kind of becomes a little bit of, of a guessing game type of thing. You know, all, all it is is just a, a, per, a percentage that we place on the athlete, whether it's 40, 50, 60, 70, 80%, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It may be 99%. There's still that 1% that they'll be fine. We may say 1% and it's the other way around. Right. And it's almost impossible for the player to even visualize what those numbers mean, right? Because it's such a complex uh, equation into what goes into that. Uh, but before we wrap up, I want to ask one question that actually I think some of our uh, viewers can take with them. You've talked about, uh, for example, Gary Vitti, and also in some uh, other interviews, I read uh, Kai Kugler as being uh, big mentors for you, people that you were able to look to, uh, to be good role models, to teach you uh, the ways and actually help guide you into the direction that you went. Can you talk about the importance of having good role models and then also being one for the next generation of professionals? Right, yeah, so, um, you know, one of the biggest things as far as athletic training or just sports medicine or just mm -hmm. sports medicine in general, whether you're a physician, a nurse, a athletic trainer, physical therapist or anything like that, you know, when, when I first started in my career, um, there was a physician out, out here in Riverside, California, Dr. Um, Dr. Gray. And when I was having a conversation with him, he told me that when it comes to sports medicine, there's two aspects to it. There's the mm -hmm. science and the art behind it. The science is basically what you learn, your degrees, your certifications, your mm -hmm. credentials, everything you learn from the book. And it's pretty much anybody and everybody can kind of do it. As long as you study, you get your grades, you can apply it. You know, you see this, it, it, I remember from the book, boom, you do that, right? The art, on the other hand, is something that cannot really be taught. Um, you have to kind of experience it. You have to be hopefully around people that, that know how to do it, stuff like that. Um, and then, and, and either one, as an athletic trainer, you have to either decide, hey, you know what? I want to, you have to either observe it, take it, or say, now go the other way type of thing. And I think that art behind it is what separates. So you have all these people that, have gone to school and you have like the, the top 10% of everybody that's, you know, that they've been successful. Mm -hmm. They got the degrees, they got the credentials, everything, great practitioners. Mm -hmm. And then I think that the art is what separates that 10%, that the next 1% there then what makes them kind of stand out. And I think that's one thing that I learned, like I said, I learned from, from Gary a lot as far as how he interacted with his athletes, um, that, that bedside manners, that trust that he built with them. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Kyle when I was over at Cal Poly. Um, the interaction that you have with the athletes, building that trust and kind of like that, that work ethic that you have. And I think that's what kind of makes everybody stand out because the books, the learning stuff, you can, I mean, you can sit in front of a computer, in front of books and do, do all the credentials, do all the stuff, but the other portion of it, I'd apply. Every time I do a presentation or, and, and I do a seminar, I always, I always leave with a quote. Um, and I think I'm gonna probably mess up the quote. Um, an athlete or a patient doesn't care how much you know, they just want to know that you care about them type mm. of thing. There you go, actually came out right. Um, and that usually comes out <laughs> at the end of the day that the athlete wants to know that you have their best interest or that the patient has, you have the best interest in mind. You're not just there because, hey, you know, I know everything. I'm the best in my class. I graduated mm -hmm. with top 1%. Sometimes people don't really care about that. Um, I'll, I'll give you a prime example. When I first, first started with, with, with the Sparks, uh, my first day we had a player with, with, an, an, with an ankle uh, injury. She had surgery. She came in. I'm like really excited. I'm going to work with mm -hmm. her. I had my notes, I kind of just studied, I'm ready to roll. And she came in and I think she was having a little bit of a personal issue and we just sat down and talked. Never did any rehab for that mm. one session. We talked, she went home, 
her and I actually later became really good friends throughout the, the rest of the rest of my the season when she was playing with us type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that was kind of like that that art, that bedside manner type of thing. Even though I was mm-hmm. really prepared to do rehab, I'm like, I said, I got my notes, <laughs> I got my protocol, I'm ready to roll. And it was like, we had to kind of geared towards the other thing. I, mean, I could have easily been an A, I was like, you know what, put that aside, we got to do rehab now. Um, yeah. But there's a balance between that type of thing. So it's interesting. So for uh, all the young people out there, you know, understanding the art behind it is, and then again, we go back to like the mental toughness and the physical toughness. That's the art mm-hmm. and the science behind yeah, sometimes uh, from an outsider's perspective, a fan's perspective, and somebody not inside an organization, it's harder to visualize these athletes as people rather than social icons, rather than being a face of a franchise in a multi-billion dollar league. Yeah. They're people just like us that go through issues and things that underlying because they they obviously aren't going to share it to the the whole world so they can see it but they will definitely go through some of these things that that everybody goes through and and the humanization of of players athletes and and all kinds of um athletes in general is is what we try and do at at backseat banter show more light on not what players have accomplished but what players have done with what they accomplished, what they feel, what they do, what they think, rather than what they've done. So, I mean, we try and resonate that message with our viewers specifically, so that they, every time they listen to us, take something from what we're talking about, from what we're talking about with our guests, and, you know, try and spread spread that message, message as well as we can. Okay. So, Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Marco Nunez, for joining us. Um, if, if you want to let everybody know uh, where they can find you. So, you know. Yeah, if they, um, you know, if anybody has any questions, I, I do a little bit of consulting on the, on the side at the same time. Um, if you have any issues, injuries, just like that, you guys are welcome to either DM me on my Instagram at Marco A. Nunez 17. That's probably the best and easiest way to do that. All right. Sounds good. Appreciate you coming on the show. For everybody listening at home, make sure to leave a rating, a review, and we'll see you next time on Backseat Carpool Banter.